0: This is Suno India Production. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now.
1: Hello friends. Welcome again to Becoming Modern, Healthcare and History in India. You might remember that in our first episode, we talked about how the 19th century was a time of radical and remarkable change in both India and the world. Throughout this podcast, we have learned that many of these changes have had long-lasting effects and even gave rise to or significantly shaped most of our contemporary practices and concepts in healthcare and medicine. But of course, our present-day world and lives also consist of many ideas and practices which date even prior to the 1800s. In the common mainstream discourse, we generally recognize these long-standing entities as belonging to, in quotes, traditional medicine.
2: i have that I'm going to take to the of Auliya. five years <laughs> old and didn't I to
1: There are several examples of what we commonly refer to as traditional medicine or traditional healthcare. Many Adivasi communities, for instance, have ways of treating and managing ill health and of creating medicinal potions, etc., from their natural surroundings. And much of this knowledge has been passed on over several centuries. Then we have dais or daimas that is midwives, who provide care to pregnant women and aid them in childbirth. Most of them belong to Dalit or other marginalized communities and have nurtured their midwifery traditions for generations. We also have families of care providers known as bone-setters in some regions of the country. And let's not forget the unacknowledged work of women who for generations and generations have been the frontline providers of medical care and advice at homes, knowing what to do and what not to do to keep members of their family safe and healthy. There is really a gloriously wide array of ideas and practices and systems out there which can be grouped under traditional medicine, not just in India but throughout the world in every human community.
0: Baba, bhaiya ko aashirwad मुझे पूरा विश्वास है आप चाहेंगे तो मेरे भैया अच्छे हो जाएंगे बाबा ऐसा कर सकते हैं जरूर कर सकते
3: हैं बाबा ऐसा कुछ नहीं हो सकता कि मैं 200 साल तक जिंदा रहूं और जब तक जिंदा हूं बीमारी बीमारी रोग वो कुछ ना हो बुखार तक ना हो बाबा और जितने मेरे ये डॉक्टर
1: दोस्त है ना but made no reference to Ayurveda or to the other so-called Ayush systems of medicine which include Yunani and Siddha. In fact, when we hear the phrase traditional Indian medicine, almost all of us reflexively and instantly think of Ayurveda first and then perhaps Siddha and Yunani, but then rarely venture beyond these few, in course systems of medicine. I would like to emphasize here that in our mainstream imagination of India's medical history and traditions we have indeed ended up emphasizing and privileging mostly ayurveda and yoga and then maybe a few other systems like siddha and yunani are depending on the context but there is far more to our medical past and culture than just these systems for example Let's for a moment imagine you were transported to the year 1721 and went on a lengthy tour of the subcontinent. Now, if you asked people everywhere about what they do when they are ill, which kinds of practitioners they go to, and what they think keeps us healthy, you would come across a tremendous diversity of ideas and practices and practitioners. While some practitioners would certainly have been Ayurvedic Vaidyas and some concepts would certainly have been derived from the larger Ayurvedic corpus, these still would have been only one small part, or big depending upon the region and its history, of a much broader and richer environment of healthcare. At the same time, let's not forget that both within the subcontinent and throughout the world People and practitioners have always learned from each other and exchanged ideas and skills. Hence, in your tour in the 1700s, you would rarely have encountered anything which could be termed as a pure, unchanged, original form of Ayurveda. Unfortunately, over the past couple of centuries and especially in recent decades, we have come to completely ignore this vibrant history. What now dominates our understanding is a flattened, narrowed down, and discolored or even uncolored, kind of colorless version of our wonderfully colorful medical past. Well, how did we downgrade from our past open diversity to our current regimented outlook? A one word answer to that is Orientalism. In today's episode, we will learn what this orientalism is and how it has resulted in the bulldozing of our medical past. Now, while orientalism has many different but related definitions and connotations in the context of the history of medicine in South Asia, we can pin it down to a few specific characteristics. To know what these are, let's first hear Professor Pratik Chakrabarti.
2: This is a very important question and it is important not just for history of medicine but also for our popular understanding of modern India as such. Because of what often we what we know of modernity and also how we look back upon our past is filtered through what is known as Orientalism. So it's almost the, the elephant in the room uh, that we do not talk about. because um, And I'll tell you why Orientalism sits as a, at a critical level between what is modern India and how modern India looks back into its past. Um, And so I'll give you um, a very brief idea of what is Orientalism in the most simple terms. Now, at the outset, there are two kinds of Orientalism. Um, And often when we think about Orientalism, we think about a classic book called Edward Said's Orientalism. Uh, Now, what that book, says in very simple sentences is uh, it is about the Arab world. It is about how the Europeans uh, from the end of the 18th century uh, gradually colonized various parts of the Arab world, uh, with starting with Napoleon's colonization of Egypt and then other parts of the Arab world, and the, how they had very negative ideas about the Arabs as savages and also Islam uh, as Christian, and that they are constantly in that view of Islam, they go back to the Crusades of the negative view of Islam. So and so, Edward Said's uh, story about Ara- Orientalism is about the European negative uh, view about the Arab world and the stereotypes about the Arab world. And they're constantly writing about the history of the Arab world in the 19th century. And it continues in the 20th century from these prejudicial ideas about the Arab world. Uh, and it's a historical prejudice that Europe has has had about the Arab world. Now, that's the one kind of Orientalism. The Orientalism that uh, affected Asia is actually a different kind of Orientalism. And that distinction is very important. The or Indian or Asian Orientalism is much older. It's an 18th century Orientalism. And what it is, is, for example, you know, William, William Jones, whom I have talked about, about the Asiatic Society, you know, the Park Street. Um, where I used to go, where my uncle uh, worked, uh, he came to uh, India as a judge, and uh, he wanted to. He has a he had he had a deep uh, interest in knowing Asia, um, its religion, its culture, its natural world. He had this deep knowledge, a uh, deep quest about this Asiatic world, uh, and it was a very intellectual quest. See, he just wanted to know. Um, so he established a Asiatic society as a as a way to have an institution which studies Asia or you know the Orient. So this is a older Orientalism compared to the Orientalism that Edward Said talks about which is the 19th century uh, and the 19th century one is a much more negative. Compared to that William Jones had a more sympathetic idea he just wanted to know but the problem there were several problems in how he wanted to know. One he thought knowledge only is captured in classical texts like Sanskrit and Persian. So he was a classicist. He knew classical texts, uh, classical languages and uh, Latin. So there's a classical. So he started going back to Sanskritic and, and, and um, textual references to know about the past. And as you know, many of much of our history is not in the texts. It's, and many of our people were not literate in that classic sense. Their knowledge was not textual. So that tradition um, of studying the Indian past from texts uh, overlooked the entire existing knowledge systems that were not textualized or which were vernacular, or that is non-Sanskrit. And also not even textualized and that's true for medical cultures many of the medical cultures medical practitioners you know you see a tent with somebody practicing medicine in an indian city that text that uh, person's medicine has never been textualized so you miss out so true medicine of india or true history of india is in the classical texts that belief and then we are indians started doing the same and you that so you whenever you go back to the past as modern india you always try to go through the classical texts and in that way the classical texts or the textual traditions become your only or most important way of establishing what is indian past and in that respect history of medicine has been very, so all these yellow colored books that you are referring to are car- are car- carrying on the same tradition so they are uh, they wanted to textually represent what is you know for example, if you see Ainsley's uh, Bazaar Medicine. So, Bazaar Medicine is a very interesting term. Uh, when the Europeans came, where can we get drugs of Indian origin? Because they couldn't get enough drugs from India, from Europe. So, they needed to procure drugs or medicines from the Indian markets. So, there was this market tradition. You know, markets where people were selling vegetables, but they were also a stalled with somebody selling uh, spices and medicines. And there would be an expert who would tell you what to do in certain situations. So they started to uh, codify that, but also what they tried to do, codify in the sense they would try to write down the name, what is the local Tamil name, what is the uh, actual content of that medicine, the drug in Latin. They also then started to compare it with the classical texts, that what is the true knowledge of this? This man is telling me something of this use, but what are the... Classical Ayurvedic text telling me about this. That is where true knowledge resides. So, truth. So, again, the medium, as I said, you know, history is through people who narrate. So, it's a narrator. They became the narrator of Indian past. So, Orientalism's role, to give you an answer, it became the narrator of Indian past.
1: As is clear, there are many aspects to the Orientalist way of thinking. It is certainly, as Professor Chakraborty said, the elephant in the room. That is, how we think about our country and its history today, especially in popular history books and YouTube videos and media discussions, is heavily influenced by an orientalist lens. Orientalism has conditioned us to think and believe that if we want to know the history of India, The most authentic and the most important sources are Sanskrit texts. In fact, these texts have been elevated to such an extent that there seems to be a widespread belief that anything that is found in old Sanskrit texts has to be true and that it should be taken at face value and not analyzed in a critical manner. This privileging of Sanskrit language and texts obviously led to a neglect of all the history which never made it to the written form, as well as of the vast amount of history which was documented in our regional languages. All of this further resulted in the histories of India's Bahujans being forced outside the mainstream, since their lives and perspectives were largely excluded from Sanskrit texts and overall from written forms. Now, if you want to see Orientalism in action, you just need to go to the Internet Archive website and type in search keywords like History of Indian Medicine or History of Ayurveda. You will find many books from the 1800s written in English by both British and Indian authors and these claim to be authentic narratives of the history of medicine in India. Of course, they are far from authentic and, in fact, are full of what are called orientalist stereotypes. These stereotypes are another major feature of orientalism, and it's time to know a little bit about them. Let's hear from Dr. Sabrina Datu.
3: So there are different meanings of the word orientalism. And I think the meaning you're referring to is the one that's made famous by a book from 1979 of that title, Orientalism. So the author of that book was uh, the late Edward Said, who was uh, a brilliant scholar, uh, a scholar of literature, English literature at Columbia University. And he wrote several books along this uh, theme. Uh, First was Orientalism, then was something called Culture and Imperialism, which I think came out in the early 90s. And his concern, uh, although he focused on the Middle East, uh, the ideas, the large ideas in his book were picked up by people who have an interest in uh, South Asian history, histories in other parts of the world that were made objects, I mean, regions of the world that were made objects of what could be called uh, colonial knowledge, okay? So um, the bigger argument there is to think about, it's an argument about what, how do we think about the production of knowledge about a particular locality? Uh, And how do we think about the production of the idea of traditional knowledge of a particular locality? And if you're thinking about, <clears throat> so Edward Said in Orientalism was really concerned about how do we think about uh, the formation of the Islamic world? Uh, Islam as a religion, the Orient as a space of being foreign, of being uh, completely different and divorced from um, the, the life of the metropole. So his aim was to talk about the production of knowledge across many different kinds of genres of writing. And that was new to think about how an administrative report, a novel, and a scholarly monograph, which are items of uh, kind of knowledge production you wouldn't all put in one framework, in classical kind of um, texts, how all of these things shared motifs about the Orient that said more about the people writing these books um, than about the objective world that they purported to describe, okay? So embedded in their descriptions of the Orient were particular ideas of uh, stereotypical kinds of figures, stereotypical emotional traits associated with uh, localities. So, I think the idea that he was trying to communicate is that people who pursue, who seem to be pursuing objective scientific research of the world around them, are often unaware of the ways in which their preconceptions color constantly uh, their writing. And that isn't simply a matter of bias. You know, it's not like you can become. It's not something that you can sort of say, well, I'm going to be, present you an unbiased view. It's one has to constantly reflect on how one's own position in the world, one's own, not only one's own upbringing, not, not one's own individual biography, but how one's ideas are formed. Okay, and how those preconceptions that we carry with us are affecting our writing. are <laughs> you? <laughs>
1: The kinds of motifs and stereotypes which Dr. Datu was referring to are some that we are very familiar with even now. And these especially have to do with defining and describing entire populations and cultures in terms of rigid binaries. For example, the material west versus the spiritual east. The Rational West versus the Irrational East, or the Scientific West versus the Superstitious East, and so on. It is also intriguing to know how the British Orientalists reconciled the narrative of a glorious Indian past preserved in old Sanskrit texts with the evaluation of their um, contemporaneous India and Indians, as exotic, irrational and superstition-laden. What they did was to claim that the ancient Indian achievements were an offshoot of ancient European excellence. For example, there was a widely held belief that Sanskrit was derived from Latin and that the origins of Ayurved lay in Greek and Roman medical texts. While such claims are mind-boggling, unfortunately, These are not the only kinds of claims or mental gymnastics involved in orientalist perspectives. Because the Indian orientalists now began making and continue to this day diametrically opposite counterclaims, their response was that Latin actually arose from Sanskrit and that it was Ayurveda which gave rise to sophisticated medical traditions in pre-modern Europe. Clearly, in all this Orientalist business, we have lost sight of the multi layered realities of our history, most of which have nothing to do with Sanskrit texts or with this kind of comparison between Europe and India. We have also forgotten the basic need to look at history and its sources with a scholarly, critical mindset. On that note, Let's now listen to how Professor Prajit Bihari Mukherjee ties all of these themes together in his commentary on Orientalism. Some listeners will remember the story of plastic surgery which Professor Mukherjee recounted in episode 2. Today we will hear that story again and also learn how it shines a bright light on this pervasive phenomenon of Orientalism. This conversation with Professor Mukherjee began with me asking him about the books written by Orientalist-minded authors from the 19th century, which are now available for free on the Internet Archive.
0: That is a very, very pertinent uh, problem now, um, in a sense. And this is why you know people sort of have made this free access to sources uh, seem like an unalloyed good. It's not always an unalloyed good. There are severe dangers in how they're being used because now you're suddenly, it's this Protestant fiction that uh, that you can just like access the source and you will know everything that you need to know. But without the training to get to that source, I think it actually produces some really uh, problematic assumptions. Not always just, and these problematic assumptions, you know, they're, of course, in the lay people, they're there, but there's also like, longer entrenched traditions within scholarship which are so problematic because th- some of these these sources have been read rather unproblematically. Um, I will let me let me maybe try and organize this answer around a story so you know in the 1790s uh, when the East India Company had already established its empire in eastern India but in western India and southern India it was still trying to fight. To uh, establish dominance, at that point uh, there's a uh, there's a character called Kowasji, who's a bullock cart driver. Apparently, he's arrested by uh, Tipu Sultan in Mysore, and uh, as is the norm with kings at that point, uh, Tipu says that this guy is a spy for the English, and he's spying in his uh, under the guise of driving a bullock cart. He's actually spying, and he cuts his nose off as punishment. And then lets him go. Says, go back to your English masters and say that now I, this is what happens to people who spy for the English. So kowasti comes back to Pune, where the English are headquartered and to his sahib masters. And he's like, give me money. I need to get my nose fixed. So they give him money, but they're like intrigued as to how are you going to get your nose fixed? And he's like, I know a guy who does these nose surgeries." So he goes to this guy this guy takes a flap of skin from the from Kowasji's forehead and reconstructs a nose. The English surgeons witness this and they are totally agog with this because in England at that time, because of tertiary syphilis, a lot of people and a lot of elites are losing their noses. And so there's a lot of money to be made if you have a if you are a plastic surgeon who can fix a nose. So these English surgeons get very excited about it. They make a drawing of this uh, of Kowasji's reconstructed nose and they publish a report in the 1790s. Europe is totally revolutionized by this. So rhinoplasty becomes big. And this has been, this has remained a very popular story. You will, if you Google this, you will see there are hundreds of mentions literally of this story. And both some scholars of Sanskrit texts, but also mostly lay people will say, See, this proves the great advances of Indian surgery. Um, and then they will say that even in the Shushruta Samhita, this kind of surgery was mentioned and we were still doing this and this was so successful. Now, what is not being asked is that the man who performs this uh, surgery in Pune, is he is not named. He is described as a man of either the bricklayer caste or the potter caste at, um, um, in different places now whatever we know of peshwai pune in the 1780s and 90s tells you that a man of that caste would not have had access to sanskrit he would probably not have been and it, there's no, nothing to say that he was he was a potter by tra- by training and by profession as well this was his sideline so he did not learn it from but it was hereditary knowledge so this is clear that he learnt it hereditarily so there were some hereditary potters who were doing very highly skilled forms of plastic surgery, or at least this one type of nose reconstruction surgery, which was common because a lot of people were cutting off noses, either kings or like sometimes husbands were cutting off noses of um, wives and they were being reconstructed. So this particular type of surgery was being done. Now, the problem is that, is this part of that Shushruta tradition or not? The word tradition basically means transmission of knowledge. It is clear that this transmission was not happening by reading Sanskrit texts and by reading Shushruta. So there is some parallel transmission happening. That would mean just linguistically that this is a separate tradition. These This tradition might even be much older than Shushruta's tradition. Maybe there was a tradition amongst South Asian potters of doing some kind of facial reconstruction because they were actually modeling faces and they learned to do that with real humans as well. But that has completely, that even that possibility has not been entertained because we have completely forgotten about this potter and made him only an exemplar of Shushruta. And this is Orientalism. When you reduce the entire past to a bunch of small number of Sanskrit texts and think everything that is good has emerged from those. So instead of thinking that maybe at Shushruta's time also, he had just heard of this surgery. Maybe he didn't do it. He heard of that surgery and wrote it down. Maybe what Shushuta talks about and what this guy is doing has no connection. There are two, two people can have two different techniques of doing or even very similar looking techniques of doing surgery without being part of the same tradition. They're not necessarily part of the same Ayurveda, same Indian medicine, whatever you call it. But Orientalism has no space for this. Orientalism will say that anything good comes from texts and they have to be, the older the text, the better. And it's usually all Sanskrit. So the simple thing is that India is a very big place. South Asia is an even bigger place. It has a very rich and diverse history. Not all of that history happened in books and not all of that history happened in Sanskrit. Not all of that history happened because upper caste men did it. So so there's, once we recognize that, I think most of the problems with Orientalism are sorted. That Once you recognize that whatever these guys are saying, we can quibble over their interpretation of Ayurveda, Charaka, Shoshruta, but it's only one small part of the past. There's a lot that has not gone into the Sanskrit book, that has gone into other kinds of books or no books at all. And that is also, and we need to be proud of that past as well. If even if you think of pride, and pride is not necessarily the only motivation for studying history, but even if you think of pride, we should take pride in that potter as well, not just in Shushruta and the fact that, oh, for centuries Shushutta has written about this.
1: A final point to note here is that the Orientalist understanding of India has foregrounded and privileged the perspectives and histories of elite caste groups, and at the same time has led to the invisibilization and erasure of the histories of the Bahujan castes. For example, I studied medicine in India and practiced for several years, but while I have heard a huge lot about Vaidya's Ayurved, and ancient Ayurvedic knowledge, I don't remember ever coming across references to the history and traditions of Dalit, dais and their midwifery or of the cataract removers which Professor Mukherjee mentioned. As all the historians on this podcast have said at some point or another, India's medical past is absolutely fascinating and full of great stories and events. But of course, these stories will reveal themselves only when we remove our prejudices, and especially the tinted glasses of Orientalism. And only when we expand our minds as well as our definitions of what India is and who Indians are, I will let Professor Mukherjee have the final word today. Thanks a lot for listening to episode 6 of Becoming Modern Healthcare and History in India.
0: You know what Kiran, because of the nature of South Asian society and the way literacy has been monopolized by upper caste groups uh, historically, not entirely but largely so i think it is actually the the other side of this is that most of these unwritten down traditions or non written down traditions are also usually lower caste traditions these are the knowledges of uh, non brahmanic castes of it um, and that is so there's another layer of politics happening there when you like when you keep privileging the textual tradition as the indian medicine not only are you losing this, but you're also repeatedly like, you know, staging a certain kind of the heritage of one group, one section of society, one caste and not the others. Thank you for listening to this episode. You can now listen to all our episodes on our Android and iPhone app. Download it now